Church, I am, I'm really excited about this, this passage. I, I cannot, well, perhaps I say it too much that you don't believe me anymore, but this may be one of the most important passages I've ever preached at the church. And last week, Pastor Ross preached on that delightful passage in Luke chapter 10, teaching us about Mary and Martha in that the only necessary thing, or maybe another way put, the, the most important thing is to be able to sit and be with Jesus, sit and receive from him. And it's not that you do that in spite of other things and you never do anything else, but if you get this thing, then you can do everything well. But if you do everything well and you don't get that, you get nothing. It's the most important thing for the believer is sitting and being with Jesus. And I'm having a problem with my iPad, so it's possible I will preach from memory, which will be okay. We'll see. I've always wanted this to secretly happen so I can just try it out. But I've never wanted to actually like plan on doing it and self-sabotaging myself. But let's see. Lord, you want it to be coming up. There it is. Okay. All right. For another time then. So, so last week we talked about sitting with him and receiving and now this week, we're going to transition, and we're starting this like mini-sermon series on prayer. And not only has God welcomed us to sit and listen to Jesus, but he's given us the great privilege to listening to us, giving us his ear to hear us. Now, I have a confession. My whole life, I've struggled with prayer. Before I became a Christian, I struggled with prayer, growing up in a Christian household, and um, I prayed out a ritual. I knew the right things to say. And when I was in real deep um, something, I prayed a lot because I needed God to help me. And then after I became a Christian, when I was 15, I still struggled praying. I struggled what to say. And maybe it's the ADHD that I have or the pride that I have or whatever. I, I struggled praying, with, praying to God regularly. And, and I especially found it boring and, and very, very convicting. Not because I was praying I was convicted during prayer. I was praying because I didn't pray. I was convicted because I didn't pray. And I would hear these stories like Martin Luther saying like, um, every day I pray for two hours, but when I'm super busy, I pray four. I'm like, get out of here. Come on, are you serious? And I would hear these kind of statements. I just feel all oh, this shame. And the reason why I share that with you is because it's real, one. And two, because my sense is that probably most Christians I've met Prayer is a sore spot for them. It's a part of their life that they yearn to be meaningful, yearn to be something that it's not. And maybe at times in your life you've tasted and seen what sweet communion with God is like, but for most of your life you just feel too busy, too distracted, not disciplined enough, or whatever it is, and prayer is more of a pain to you. Constant reminder of how you are not a quote-unquote good Christian. And believe it or not, in our passage today, it seems like the disciples felt the same. They struggled. How do you pray? What do you say? And in their hyper-religious culture where religion was not just a part of their life, but the whole that everything surrounded around, they were very steeped in lots of prayers and lots of rituals. And yet they hear Jesus praying one day and they say, hey, that, that sounds different. Teach me. Teach what you, what, Whatever you just did, I, I want to know that. Teach me how to do that. And so look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Jesus is praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So it seems like the disciples still had, had a similar itch with us. I don't want to overly project into their situation, but I, I think these are fair assumptions. And so 
I think a lot of us struggle. And so the question that I'm not going to answer is why pray? That's a worthy sermon. But how do we pray? If you ever wonder yourself, how do I pray, Sam? I, I struggle. How do I pray? Well, listen up. Jesus is the greatest teacher to learn how to pray from. Who else would we want to learn to pray from but Jesus? And he's teaching us and inviting us today and say, hey, let me teach you how to pray. So I hope, hope you tune in if you're like, man, prayer is a struggle. Man, hopefully after tonight, God's going to take you on a journey to where prayer would be a blessing instead of a burden and a joy instead of a chore. So I welcome you. Um, let's start off. Before we get into the specifics, I want to make a point that I don't think that this prayer is necessarily meant to recite word for word every day. And the reason why I say that is not to say that you shouldn't. In fact, I encourage you to. But I don't want you to feel in bondage to these words and this order perfectly every single time um, as if this is the only way you pray. I don't think when Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, he's saying without exception every single time. Because if you read throughout the whole scripture, there's tons of other prayers, right? Throughout scriptures, Paul prays. I mean, you, you, if Paul prays something, you should be like, eh, eh, it's not the Lord's prayer. Stop, stop it. Stop praying for the saints, right? Like there's lots of other things that scripture shows prayer. And if you look at Matthew's version of the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter six, his is slightly different. So I don't think the, the point is getting every word the same way every time. But I encourage you to. And, and the reason why I encourage you to do that is because I want you to, Consider the Lord's prayer as an outline, as a framework for your prayers, as a um, true north, as your mind wanders, as you struggle what to say, just go back to the Lord's prayer and let that be a launch pad, each phrase being a launch pad to so many different other prayers and, and, and let that theme of whatever that phrase is lead you to deeper depths of prayer. So I think that's what Jesus is doing here. There's a quote from David Garland that I want to share with you. He's a scholar, and he says this. Jesus intends the model prayer to function like a tuning fork by which disciples can measure whether their prayers are in the right pitch. It is to be used as an outline that those who pray may fill it out with their own words. I love that. It's kind of like a a tuning fork. Like, ding, it's middle C or whatever, and it just helps you get back to it. Because I don't know if, if you're like me. Sometimes I just struggle. I don't know what to say. I'm so distracted. My phone keeps buzzing. I want to look up this. I want to do that. And, and for some reason, when I have time set apart for prayer, all of a sudden, cleaning things seem strangely attractive. Anybody know what I'm saying? Like, I don't like cleaning in general. But all of a sudden, while I'm praying, I like look over. I'm like, I need to vacuum that. Or I need, I need to clean that, right? The, the distractions are galore. Now, With that qualification set apart, I don't want you guys to adopt this prayer as like the only thing you ever say every time in like a rote religious way. I want you to notice the order of this prayer. The order is just as important as the content, specific content. The prayer starts with God first. And then it gets into our requests. And this is super important because our tendency, and when I say our tendency, I mean my tendency is that we start with requests first. And then maybe we throw a little God in there. Or maybe you start with God, but it's kind of like, dear God, thank you for this day. You're awesome, great, blah, da, 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 da. Okay, let me get to the stuff that I really care about. Let me get those preliminaries out of the way. Holy are you, all that whatever stuff. Now, let me tell you what I'm bothered by. And make no mistake, God cares about the things you're bothered by. 
He cares about the things you're pained by. He cares about the things you're worried about more than you know. And he wants to hear that from you. But before you get to the request, start with God first. And that order is going to be life-changing for all of us if we do it. Most of you aren't saying, preposterous, you shouldn't say that, Sam. Most of you are like, yeah, that, that makes sense. And yet in real practice, when it's boots on the ground, in the day-to-day stuff of life, when life is pressing on us and stresses are high, it's hard to go God first because we have so much on our hearts, so many anxieties, so many things that we're concerned about. So the, the reason, one of the reasons why it's so important to start God first is because not only is it because he's worthy, but when you start God first, it actually influences and informs all of your requests. It changes things drastically if you start with him first. And then all of a sudden, when you start with him first and you stay there for a minute, the things that seem so pressing are put in the rightful place, are put into perspective. And all of a sudden, that thing that feels like it just, it's just suffocating you emotionally just doesn't seem that big of a deal, even if it's a big deal. Another thing about starting with God first is you're starting about starting orienting your heart thinking about a person. I'm going to share a quote with you on a screen from a mercifully short book called Enjoy Your Prayer Life by Michael Reeves. Everything he's ever written I've enjoyed. He's very readable and yet he's really solid biblically. And he has this really short prayer book where every chapter is like a page and a half. So you're like, yes, I just read a page. I mean, not a page. I read a a whole chapter and you just feel really, really accomplished. He has this one line that was really profound when I first read it. It should be up on the screen. When you default to thinking of prayer as an abstract activity, a thing to do, the tendency is to focus on the prayer as an activity, which makes it boring. Instead, focus on the one to whom you're praying. Reminding yourself who you are coming before is a great help against distraction and changes the prayer. That's just what happens in the Psalms. They constantly interrupt their own petitions to speak of the Lord's faithfulness and kindness. So should we. And pers- persistently focusing again on him who elicits more earnest and heart- hearty prayer. In other words, when you focus on the person, it brings prayer to life into a conversation that it's supposed to be. But it's not just enough to keep in mind that you're speaking to a person, but who is this person you're speaking to? For all of us speak drastically differently to a cop than to our daughter or to a spouse compared to our coworker or an enemy, right? Based off the person, what their character is like, their history with you, who they are in the world will drastically affect the way you approach and relate with them. And so... Not only do you start off when you pray focusing on the fact that you're actually talking to a living person where you're having a conversation, a relationship with, but you're focusing on the kind of person you're speaking to. So how does Jesus encourage us to relate with God? Well, look at verse 2. As a father, our father in heaven. How big of a deal is that, that God is our father? It is one of the greatest hallmarks of being a Christian. In the Old Testament, there was only a handful of instances where Israel, Israel was related to God as a father. It was mainly as a, as a corporate sense, like nationally. Oh, God is our father as a people. He's the father of our people group, of our ethnic group. But in the New Testament, God related as father comes up over 200 something times. It's a drastic shift from becoming more impersonal to personal. And that changes everything about the way you pray. And that changes everything about 
your relationship with God. See, relating with God as Father is so foreign. Relating with him as a mystical spirit, that kind of makes sense in the light of the world. Relating to him as a king, yeah. Yeah, God is a king. Yeah, I can relate with him as a subject to a king. But as a father, that's entirely something so far vulnerable and intimate that for many of us, it just scares us. That's too close to home. When we relate to God as Father, it's as simple as a child making known his or her request to a parent with no need for eloquence or all these special words to introduce their way to talk to, the, to their father. All right? If you have a good relationship with Father, you don't start off saying, Oh, gracious, awesome Father who rules, may I speak with you? No, no, you just hop into his lap and you can tell him your darkest fears or your wildest dreams. Or you can talk to him about your greatest requests. See, the thing about a good father, I'm not talking about just fathers in general, because most fathers in general statistically are not what they ought to be. But good fathers have the perfect balance of both authority and intimacy. See, father is better than, when you think about God as a father, it's better than thinking about simply as a king or a God or, or a friend or anything. All those things are in the Bible. Those are different ways we relate with God. But I think it's so significant that father is the number one emphasized way because father combines both authority and warmth. See, a good father exercises healthy authority in a household. And yet a good father is also one you can just crawl up into his lap. Something so beautiful about healthy fathers. Now, I realize as I share that, statistically speaking, and knowing almost all of you in here, many of us here have deep father wounds. A father wound is basically something that can only come from our father or their lack of. Some of you have had absentee fathers. Some of you have had fathers who were, were just not there for you when they needed to be, even though they were there physically in the household. And, and maybe some of you had the, the most extreme sense where they outright did evil upon you. And if that's you, hearing God as father and relating him first as father may really be challenging for you. I know that. It took me a while. And I would just say, it's worth the work. It's worth the pain. Press into it. I encourage you to share that with someone in, your, in our, one of our members. If that is a sore spot, and, and when you pray, you only say God or Lord or Jesus, and you can't talk to him as Father, there's something off there, and you're missing riches. You're missing a deeper relationship with him that he wants to have for you. In fact, that is one of the great things about salvation is that we're not just forgiven, but we're adopted as children. And he wants us to enjoy the full privileges of sonship and daughtership. So I encourage you, if that's a a struggle, please share that with someone. Because the challenge is until you overcome that, you're going to constantly be projecting your broken father upon God the Father. And let me tell you this, God the Father is better than every single good trait of your earthly father and then some. And he has none of the bad traits that your earthly father has. There's a book called Not Forsaken written by Louis Giglio. If you struggle through this or you want to go deeper in what God is like as a father, I recommend that book. I've gone through it with a handful of people. It's super readable. Not Forsaken by Louis Giglio. Just want to throw that out as a side note. 
All right, so when we stop, we remember first and foremost that we're praying to a person. It's a living relationship. So you're focusing on a person rather than what you ought to say. Just like if you're on a date with someone you love, if you focus on what's the right words to say, you're going to say something dumb or it's going to be all awkward. But if you focus on the person, the words will flow more uh, fully and freely. But not only focus that it's a person, focus on the kind of person. It's a heavenly father who's good and powerful both at the same time. Now let's get into the content. What do we want for this father? Hallowed be your name. Now that word hallowed is kept in most modern day translations because most people, when they look for a new Bible, they check their favorite passages. And if it sounds different from what they grew up, they will discard it. But hallowed is unfortunately continued to be used in most translations that we read because it's of, of the classic kind of where we come from. Now, hallowed is a fine word, but almost nobody uses that word. And so it's tricky. So what does that mean? Hallowed be your name. What are we asking God? Well, let me be clear. You're not asking God to make something be that's not. In other words, it's not like God isn't great. And we're now saying, God, let you be great. No, no, no. The thing is, God is great. And we want people to see him as he, as he is. We want people to see God as who God is. Now, it's possible um, well, well let, me, let me make a quick clarification. Because when we use the word name, that's another terminology that's f- unfamiliar with our culture. But when you read through that the Bible, there's a big deal about the name. In, in Hebrew, they would just say Hashem, the name, the name, the name. What's the deal about the name? Well, name in Hebrew and in the, old, in the, in the biblical context represented the totality of who a person is. The name is corrected, connected to the character. Now, in our modern day context, we kind of understand that. Like, imagine if I had a a, a public falling. My name is ruined, right? It's not like Sam, the name Sam is ruined for all Sams in the world. Like, oh, sorry, Sams, I screwed up our name, right? But it's Sam Choi. Like, there, there's something connected about that my name and what all that represents of who I am. And if, if I have a public falling out, that's going to um, ruin people's perception of, of who I am, okay? So when you think about name of God, Think about all that he is. And so name represents his, his fame, his character, his heart. And it's also possible that Jesus had exit, uh, Ezekiel 36 in mind. It's going to be on the screen. You can flip to it if you're taking notes or write, write it down quickly if you're taking notes. Would you read this with me out loud? Therefore, says to the house of Israel. In other words, God's name, because of Israel as a wayward people, were just constantly cheating on him and living out um, their own ways. His name was ruined among the nations. See, God's people in his name are intricately connected. And the way the world perceives his people is a direct connection of the way they perceive his name or who he is. And so when we are praying this prayer, we are praying that the world would, na- would see and know the greatness and the goodness and, the act- and, and see God rightly. 
But also, when we're praying this prayer, if we know that our God's name is tied to us as a people, then we can't sincerely pray this prayer with a clean conscience if we are regularly profaning his name among the nations. See, so much of this prayer throughout the Lord's Prayer is both a prayer that we're asking for others or asking for God in the world, but they all imply something that we will do to be part of it. You can't pray for that if you're not committed to being about his name and fame. It, it's, it's both and reality. And this prayer doubles as a commitment and offering that we will play a part in redeeming God's name and spreading God's fame through word and deed. So when I get to this point of the prayer, I, I usually try to spend time praying, God, help me care about your name. Because if I'm honest, I don't really care that much. I care more about my name. I mean, what would, what would t- sorry, sorry for the language, piss you off more if you heard that your name was smeared all over social media in our community, just lies about you? Would that bother you more or bother you the fact that God's name is profane among the nations right now? That so many in our nation, in our city, don't see him as they, as they ought to. I'd, I'd be pretty ticked off if, if you guys all lied about me. You know? And, and that's a gut check for me. See, because the, the, the degree of my passion for God's name is going to be the degree of how much I'm going to try to show people God's name and fame in my lifestyle. And so when I'm praying this, I'm saying, God, would you increase my passion for your name, for your glory? And I also ask that you would help me see him. I, I, I say this, God, help me see you rightly so that I can respond with passion. Because passion is directly connected to vision. The more we see him, the more our hearts respond with a passion for him. So God, give me a greater vision of you because it's too small. My worship is too small. My witnessing is too small. All of that is connected, not through hard work and grit, but through a vision of him. So God, give me a vision for you. Spend time during this part of the prayer asking God for vision for him and passion for him and that God would be glorified in your workplace, in your family, in your, in your neighborhood, in our cities, in our nations. The next phrase, your kingdom come. Whoa, God, what, a, what about my kingdom? <laughs> See, because the issue is we all have our own kingdom, don't we? We have all our, king, our own kingdoms, and the cosmic problem is that our kingdom is at odds with his kingdom. If you're honest, you have a kingdom. You have an agenda. You have your ways. And it's in direct opposition with the kingdom of God. And the more you grow as a Christian, the more his agenda, his culture, his ways become what yours is. And God willing, eventually they become so synonymous and so close, you can't tell the difference. (laughs) So at this point, we are fighting against treating God as a cosmic genie who exists to give us whatever we want to fulfill our kingdom's wishes. As long as we live morally upright lives, maybe throw some money in a bucket, you know, not do the biggest sins out there, um, then, then, then God kind of owes us blessing. God owns us children. God owns us money or good health or, or our dreams to come true. As long as we go through the right hoops, then God is going to pay us back. And so this point of the prayer is when I try to get on my knees and, and, and I freshly surrender, Jesus, you're the king, I'm not. Jesus, 
I give you control. Jesus, you're the king. I'm not. But what are we asking for when we say your kingdom come? Well, it's both present and future. Throughout the gospels, you see Jesus talk about the kingdom has already come. And then also you see other times where Jesus and the apostles speak about the kingdom yet to come. And so we're, we've said this many times, we're living in this awkward overlap of the ages, the already but not yet. The kingdom has come and is still coming in greater force. It's spreading and it will come in its totality one day and make all things new. And so this prayer, in this part of the prayer, I am praying, God, let your kingdom come now through me, through my family, through my church, in my heart. I say that almost every day. Lord, let your kingdom come in my heart. So I'm, I'm, I'm welcoming Jesus to take rightful place in my heart and for his culture, his ways to transcend and fill my whole life and every sphere of influence I have. But I also, and this is something I've, I've forgotten, I also can use this time as a time to say, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, and make all things new. It's both now and forevermore. So use this time when you pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come back. Come back. Hasten your coming. And again, this prayer beckons us to action. You cannot authentically pray this prayer and not be simultaneously committed to bringing his kingdom wherever you go. How can you pray such a thing? What a hypocrite we would be to say, Lord, your kingdom come, when we know there are huge areas of our life where his kingdom has not come and we will not let it come. These areas, no. Sunday, yes. You can't pray that sincerely if you have huge areas of your life where you have said this far and no more, Lord. You can't. Every part of your heart must say, Lord, you got the keys. You know? I hate to say it, but it's a good term. Take the wheel, Lord. Every part, right? I hate it, but it's good, right? The next phrase, your will be done. One of the primary purposes of prayer is not to move God, but to move us. It's us trying to get our heart's will aligned with God's will. Not impose our will upon God. God, you must do this. Or haven't you seen how hard I've worked for you? Haven't you seen how pure or all that I've given and done? No, no, no. This is a time where our hearts are surrendering and we're letting our wills align with his. Not my will be done, but your will be done. Let me ask you this. Can you say sincerely that you are more committed to God's will than yours? I'm going to take a drink of water to let that sit. Are you more committed right now to God's will than yours? Can you say sincerely, God, I am more committed to your will and your ways than mine. And you know the answer to that prayer if there are huge areas of your life where you're just saying, God, I won't do that. I won't forgive that person or I won't talk to that person or I won't do this or that. I heard one, 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 one preacher say, I think Francis said it, he said, what would, what, would you, what would the Holy Spirit do if he had complete control over you for 24 hours? And the answer should be whatever I normally do. But sadly, that's not true always for me and not true for you always. <clears throat> Let me say this. 
Until you can get to this part sincerely, your will be done, your kingdom come, then don't you dare go to any part of your other prayers. If you can't get past this and do this sincerely and surrender your will, then don't, don't even waste your breath going on to all your requests. Stop here and stay here until you get that, until your heart can surrender. And if you can't surrender, then just stay there until you can. Maybe it'll take days. Maybe you need to come talk to one of us and need prayer for breakthrough. Because if God were to let you skip over this surrendering of your will to his and just skip over and get to your request and give you all that you want, then that would be one of the most unloving things God could do for you, right? Because those things would further alienate and drift your relationship apart from him. See, because if you don't have this part in order in your heart, then things are actually going to be enemies for your soul. Blessings are actually going to be curses. But when Jesus is a center, his kingdom, his will, his ways, then you can handle the blessings. But if it's not, then those blessings are cursing, curses. Who cares if you get the best promotion or the, the best looking wife or husband or whatever? If you don't have Jesus at the center, all the other things are going to just further make it harder for you to trust in Jesus and surrender to him. That's why Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I really encourage you at this point of the prayer or maybe even the very beginning, get on your knees. Because often the posture of our bodies are represented, are connected to the posture of our hearts. And I wonder if some of you have not got on your knees before the Lord in a long time, if ever. I encourage you to do it daily. It's uncomfortable. It really is. But what it does is it helps remind you who you're talking to. It reminds you who's your God, who's your king. Get on your knees daily in the morning, ideally if you can. Humble yourself before the Lord. If you, if you got something that's holding you back from full surrender, please, please come talk to someone. Remember, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And I don't want any of you to leave tonight with half-surrendered hearts, even 90% surrendered hearts. If there's something that you're holding back, it's going to destroy you. It's going to sabotage your relationship with the Lord and potentially, potentially damn you to hell. Because if he doesn't have it all, he doesn't have any of it all, <laughs> truly. Now, we're going to get to our favorite part of, of the prayer. Give us, yeah, our requests. But can, but can I tell you something? If you spend enough time on the first part of the prayer, then it's going to totally reorder the second part of your prayers. Right? We got, we got to stay in the first part. And the more you do it, the quicker it'll be. If you don't pray regularly, then that first part of the prayer may take a couple of weeks to get you back there. Because your heart is so, so stuffed full of idols and other things and competing desires. But if you're daily there, then you don't need to just sit there all day. Because your heart is already in a, in a, in a, in a, in a settled state of surrender and worship. All of these requests that are about to follow are assuming that you're, great, you're talking to a person who's a gracious, good, and powerful God, Father... You are passionate about his name, not yours. And you want his kingdom to advance, not yours. And you are surrendered to his will and not opposing yours on him. 
And Jesus requests three Ps, if you want to just make it easier for notes. Provision, pardon, and protection. Three Ps. Provision, pardon, and protection. First, provision. Give us each day our daily bread. Again, every one of these requests, we got to keep who we're talking to in mind. We're talking to a good, good father. And not just a good father who has a good heart, but a father who has a strong hand, who can do anything he wants. You need both the heart and the hand to, 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 to talk to God with confidence. So you're talking to God who's a father, and this language, daily bread, reminds us of manna or manna. Manna, if you're unfamiliar, was just this miraculous substance that was kind of like bread that would just appear every day for the Israelites for many years. And that's all they needed. That must have been boring, but that's all they needed every day, just enough for them. Not too much, not too little, just enough. Miraculously, God fed them from heaven and gave them their daily bread. And so in a similar manner, whenever we say, God, give us our daily bread, we're saying, God, just like the Israelites depended on you, God, I am dependent on you for every, every crumb on my table, every drop of drink in my cup, all of my health, it's all dependent on you. I need you. And the reality is I often pray this prayer a lot when I'm in need, and I tend to not pray it when I have a lot. But this prayer is meant to be prayed daily, whether you have feast or famine. See, because if you have famine, you're saying, God, please, I need my daily bread. I'm, 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 I'm hungry. The bank account's dry. And if you're full and you have a windfall of lots of money and lots of food, you're saying, God, everything I have is yours. It reminds you, it brings you back, Lord, that everything I have is yours. So whether you're, you're balling or you're poor, you're saying, it's all the Lord's. I need you, Lord. Remember, this prayer is also prayed in the plural. This whole thing, our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. It's, pray, it's meant to be prayed privately, but also publicly as a church family, as a people of God. And what does that imply for us? Well, know this. The majority, the most common way God provides for each other is through God's people. Most of the time, God doesn't just throw bread into, you, into your hands out of nowhere miraculously. He usually does it through a person, usually one of his people. And so imagine this. You are praying with a small group of people, God, give us today our daily bread. And you look up and you hear someone say that, and you know they're struggling with their car payment. You know they're struggling with their job. Their job is on the rocks or they don't have a job. How can you sincerely pray that prayer if you're not willing to open up your pocket? See, this prayer is a beautiful prayer because it's both individual and it's done as a family. And if we pray, give us today our daily bread, we're taking care of one another as we're asking God to take care of us. Because the way God takes care of us often through each other. I encourage you, pray this prayer with others. And know that it's done in an hour. It's a plural prayer. Now finally, I can't help but when I pray this prayer every day, is I have to think spiritual. And the reason why I think spiritual is when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And I think throughout scripture, it talks about the word being something to be eaten. And so when I pray this prayer, I usually also pray, God, satisfy my soul with you. Help me feed from your word so that I'm not hungry for the world's bread. Feed me, Lord. Satisfy me. 
Now you say, well, Sam, this is probably physical. How can you make it spiritual? Well, the Bible doesn't parse things like spiritual and physical just so nicely like we do, right? Because heaven, is it spiritual or is it physical? Well, right now it's spiritual, but one day it will be both spiritual and physical on this earth, right? So, so salvation is both spiritual vertically, but it's also horizontally. God is going to reconcile all things, all creation. And so I think it's legit. So I pray for my soul to be satisfied with the Lord. Now, second P, pardon. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Again, who are we praying to? Our Father, the great sovereign king of the universe. And so whenever we sin, we sometimes sin against people and against ourselves, but we always sin against the Lord. He's the ultimate authority, and he's the only one who can pardon us. See, look at this word debt. It's kind of a strange word, but when you wrong someone, in one sense, you're indebted to them. You have to pay it back. You have to make amends. You have to make it right. There's a debt that you have to care for. And so you're saying, Father, forgive me my debts. We're not talking financial. We're talking spiritual debts, sin debts. God, I've sinned against you. I have wronged you. There's a debt that I have to repay, but I can't. Thank you, Jesus, for paying for my debt. Please forgive me afresh today. So at this point of the prayer, I'm either going to the Lord asking for forgiveness in areas of my life that I can think of that are already on my mind, or I'm spending time praying Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If I don't know of a sin, I'm asking God, there's probably a sin. Help me see it. Open my eyes to see what I'm blind to or I'm not blind to. I just want to avoid. Give me grace to repent. Give me grace to confess. So spend time asking for pardon and reminding yourself of the sweetness of the gospel that you are forgiven in Jesus. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, that that's a promise and you can hold him to it. Despite how you feel, you can hold him to that because he promised it. And God's a good dad who keeps to his promises. But there's another side of this prayer, isn't it? The phrase, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. What? See, see, when someone sins against us, in one sense, they're in debt to us. Something needs to be paid back, needs to be restored. Restitution needs to be had. They need pardon from us. So when we forgive others, we are letting go of the debt. We're trusting that Jesus will take care of sin one day. And if they're a Christian, he, he's already taken care of their sin. And we're letting it go. We're letting go of the debt. We're burning up the debt. But this passage just assumes that it's hand in hand. Why? Well, because those who have been forgiven much love much. And if you've been forgiven much, how can we expect from God which we will not give to others? How can you say like that wicked man in Matthew 18, have mercy on me. And then you receive mercy and then you go find someone who's wronged you just one ounce of what you've done to God and say, pay me back everything you owe or I'll throw you into prison. If you want to go deeper, look at Matthew chapter 18, if you're taking notes. 
So at this point of the prayer, I'm asking myself, God, am I right with everyone? Is there anyone that I've sinned against that I need to go apologize to, that I need to make amends to? Or I'm also asking, is there anyone I'm withholding forgiveness from that I'm holding against them that which you don't hold against me? Let me ask you something. Is there something, is there someone you're holding for, withholding forgiveness from? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, actually, that if you do this, God will withhold forgiveness from you. It's that serious. It's that serious. There's no in, if, and, but. It's not, oh, well, you don't know what they did. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. They probably did something worse than I know. But you've done worse to God than you know. And how can we have that same kind of begrudging attitude towards others when God has been so, so generously gracious to us? If you cannot forgive someone who has wronged you, stop here until you can. Paul the Apostle unpacks this years later, even more. Ephesians chapter 4 on the screen, 32. <clears throat> Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. The forgiveness doesn't come from your own power or because you're trying to be like many of the new age or self-help people. Well, when you forgive people, you realize that the greatest person in bondage was yourself. Well, that's true. That is true. But that, that's a selfish reason why to forgive someone. Because ultimately you forgive because Christ has forgiven you. And you know how people say like bless up or whatever. I don't know whatever young people say these days, right? As God's grace comes to you, now it flows through you. What God has done to you, he wants to now do through you. So church, ask yourself, is there anyone you're withholding forgiveness from? Final request, the final P. We talked about provision, talked about pardon, and now we're talking about protection. When I say protection, please know I'm not talking about physical protection, though that matters. But when you search the scriptures, God does care about physical protection, but he infinitely cares more about spiritual protection. Because the body will perish, spirit will be forever so God is infinitely more concerned about your spiritual protection. And so often our prayers are so focused on preserving us physically. Oh, Lord, give us traveling mercies. This way, this way and that. I'm not saying that's a bad prayer, but that shouldn't be your first prayer. And so often it's our first prayer because we're so focused on using God to preserve us. And that's not the main thrust of Scripture, though that is important. So when we pray, we say this, lead us not into temptation. This word temptation is a little tricky because it could either mean trial or like a, just a hard, hardship or it can be literal like temptation towards sinning something specific. It's a tough passage, confusing at first. And whenever you have a tough passage, you can't just read it at face value. You have to then zoom out, try to think about the other passages that help inform and fill out any questions you may have. So, when I do that, I look that this word for temptation is used three times by Luke in the Gospel of Luke. And the first time, it's in the context of Jesus being tempted, led into the wilderness, being tempted by Satan for 40 days, 40 nights. And the second, in the second and third time, it's Jesus in the garden with his disciples. And he says, hey, pray that you won't enter into temptation because his hour is at hand. And in the first case, Jesus conquers sin and he doesn't fall into temptation. In the second, the disciples utterly fall on their face and fall into temptation. 
Another passage is going outside of the Gospel of Luke. We look at James chapter 1. It's on the screen. Would you read this with me? James 1, 13 through 14. Let no one say. Okay, what do we see here? Whenever we're tempted, we know that it's not God directly tempting us. Though he uses temptations and trials to shape us, to reveal to us how much we need him and all these kind of things, he does not directly tempt us towards evil. That is, that is a very, very important thing to believe and understand from the scriptures. And so often people miss this out and they're like, God made me do it. No, God did not make you do it. Don't you dare take the sovereignty of God and make it go to places the Bible does not take it. God is sovereign over all things, and yet man is culpable of all the things that man does. And Scripture does not mix those categories like we do often. So we see that God is not the one who tempts, but we are tempted by our own desires, lured and enticed by our own desires. And then in other Scriptures, we see that we are also tempted from outside, Satan and his demons trying to tempt us as well. But God does not tempt so keeping these passages in mind, how do we understand this prayer, lead us not into temptation? Because it sounds a little funny. So we're not praying to be delivered from all temptations and trials because those are normal. And until Jesus comes back, they're going to be with us. And in fact, God uses them for good in our life, doesn't he? If we respond appropriately to them. The prayer is asking God to deliver us from overpowering, overwhelming temptation recognizing we are weak and fallible people. So to make it personal, it's something like this. I would pray. <clears throat> Father, you know me better than I know myself. You know how I'm wired. You know my propensities. You know my weaknesses. You know my pride, my lust. You know me inside and out. You know every hair on my head. Father, would you guard me today and keep me from situations that would just be too much? I'd be, I'd be too tempted to fall away from you. Situation, I'm just too weak. I don't want to sin against you, Lord. Keep me from those situations. That, that, that's kind of the heart. What we are humbly declaring in that moment is that at our very best, we are still vulnerable to sin, if it not the grace of God. And this is what separates the immature and mature Christian. See, the mature Christian knows their limits. They know that they are fallible. They know 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? Um, take heed. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. They know these things. They know that scripture talks about fleeing from sexual immorality. A Proverbs that says, don't even go near her door or her neighborhood. They know these things, so they avoid them. And they've learned that one of the greatest secrets of killing sin is before you're even tempted. It's avoiding the situation. Not putting yourself in those dumb situations where you have to rely on your weak self-control in the split second. The mature know that. The immature are like Peter, who Jesus says, Satan is going to sift you, Peter. You're going to fall away, all of you. And what does Peter say? Not me. And he literally falls away, cursing, knowing Jesus, because a little servant girl is asking about it. See, immature Christians have a lot of confidence in their own self-control. They have a lot of pride in how strong they are. And that's a big difference between the mature and the immature. For the wise Christian, we don't try to look for temptation and test how morally strong we are. I had one friend when I was in high school or Bible college, I don't remember when, and he'd watch just movies with just very pornographic scenes in it. 
Like, what, the, what are you doing? He said, well, it's, it's, I'm testing myself. I'm building my moral strength against lust to see these women as God made them. He spiritualized it, made it sound all good. Scripture does not call you to try to be strong enough to look at porn. Flee sexual immorality. Flee from that garbage that's ruining our world and destroying families and fueling sex trafficking. For the wise Christian, we do not look for temptation to test because we're trusting in Jesus, who's the only one who was led to be tempted in order to triumph for us. Jesus is the only one who had the strong moral courage. He's the only one who has the self-control. He's the one who was tempted for 40 days by Satan himself and nights while not eating by himself in the desert, and yet he still did not fall. That's the Jesus that we look to and we trust in. We don't trust in ourselves because we're so tough and so strong. Every single time I think I'm over things and I just, just try to do things on my own and not do all the things the Bible calls me, I fall on my face. Now, let me be clear. I think this is an important qualification because sometimes people will hear this and be like, okay, I'm going to avoid the world completely. Jesus does not call us to avoid the world. He calls us to go into the world with the gospel. And sometimes that's going to be challenging situations, tempting situations. But my concern is that for most of us, and, and our issue is not tempting situations because we're trying to bring the gospel to them. It's because we want to be in tempting situations because of our sin. There's a big difference. Because God will supply grace if you need to go into a dangerous situation for if you're doing it for him. But the Spirit knows the difference. Spirit knows the difference if you're doing it for you because you want to satisfy your lust and you want to conveniently get into places or because you're doing it for him. You're evangelating someone, doing it for the glory of God. I'm going to date this really hot person who doesn't know Jesus. Are you Really? Really? Because if you're doing it for the Lord, the Spirit, well, I'm not saying you should do that, but I'm saying if you're doing it for the Lord, the Spirit will supply strength. But if you're doing it for yourself, he's going to let you fall on your face. You got to check your heart. So I'm not calling for an insular, like stick your head in the sand kind of Christianity where we just avoid all the darkness in the world. That, that, is, that is not what we're here for. So we're, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's, that's a tricky thing. And most people can't handle that tension. So they either pick one or the other. <laughs> I'm going to be all in, or I'm going to just be not at all. And we're not called for either. So when we pray this prayer, we are making commitment to set our hearts for the Lord, not to sin against them. You cannot sincerely pray this, pray this prayer if you're not willing to make, take actionable steps to avoid those situations. Lord, lead me not in temptation as you like walk into temptation. That's just testing God. That's just playing with him. No, no, you, when you pray this part of the prayer, you're saying, God, keep me from sin. I don't want to sin against you. I want to be set apart for you. Lord, help me know. And he may even put people or places in your mind that morning to show you, avoid that. I'm, this is how I'm leading you away and keeping you. Now, let me land the plane here. Again, let me be clear. You don't have to say every one of these words, but I encourage you to. And I encourage you to use this gift as a, template as an outline, as a launch board for deeper prayer and communion with God. I said in the beginning, I've always struggled with prayer my whole life. And it's embarrassing for me to say as a pastor, because one of the chief callings for my life is to be a man of prayer, word and prayer. And I still struggle. And that's going to be one of my big focuses in on my sabbatical is getting my life aligned with, with the heart of God and just praying daily like, like crazy. 
I still pray, don't, don't get me wrong, but the prayer life that I have is not what it ought to be. But can I tell you, years ago, early on in my discipleship, someone taught me the Lord's Prayer to use this as an outline. And I didn't know all the, some of the things I've shared with you, but I knew that, and this has been a, a lifesaver for me. It has been something that I've gone back over and over again when the, the well is dry, my mind is distracted, I don't know what to say, what to pray, I'm discouraged. Use this as a gift. God has given us as a gift, a template for us, a how-to so we can connect deeply with him. I really encourage you to take this to your heart. And listen, we have to keep in mind that we're speaking to, the, to our good father who's both kind and powerful. And we have to keep in mind the order of this prayer. Start with God first. I'm not saying there's not a time where you need to cry out because something's going on and you're like, wait, first, you know, someone's dying. Wait, first, God, you're great, da-da-da-da-da. No, please, don't, don't, don't be weird about it. Like, there's flexibility. But, but as a general rule of thumb, let your heart go with God first. Start kingdom first, God first. Go there and then eventually get to request and it will change everything, I promise you. And I just want to end with this. Our Heavenly Father wants to hear from you this week and he proved it how bad he wants to hear from you by sending his own to remove every single barrier that keeps us. How much does God want to hear from you? This much, right? That much. Because what, what, what do we have? Like, what business do we have even speaking to him with the kind of filth of our background and the filth of our minds and all the different things we've done? What, what business do we have talking to the king of the universe who's so pure and so good? We don't have any business. The only reason we have business is because we've been forgiven, cleansed, and adopted. And so we have a seat at his table, and he has an open ear to us. That is amazing. Amazing. You have a great gift, and that gift was very costly for him. But it's free for you. You get to talk with him, and he's going to listen. Imagine almost any culture in any time of the world, and you say, hey, this God who has all power and is loving will actually hear you anytime you speak. Can you imagine how crazy that would be for most of them? Because most cultures, they would have to do all these hoops and go through all these with just a hope that maybe, maybe some divine God out there would hear them. But we have this direct access with him where we can hear him through his word and we can respond and have his ear and pray. What a gift he's given us. What a gift that we spurn so often. And so here's a charge for you this week. I wanna challenge every one of you, even if you like, have a better prayer life than me, that's great, I hope you do. No matter who you are, I encourage you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day for the next week. Every day for the next week. Imagine, and, and use it as a, as a launch pad for other things you want to pray. It's not everything you ought to pray, but it's definitely what you must pray at least. And imagine what our community would be like if this whole week, every single one of our members were on their knees in the morning. Can you imagine? What our community like would be one week from today if every single one of us were on knees every day this week. And every day, every one of our members said, your kingdom come, your will be done, and surrender to him. And receive pardon from God. So often, me, we can come to the church and we're full of burdens and full of sin that we haven't confessed yet. What if you already did it with him that day? <laughs> so you come full of joy because you've already been forgiven. What would our church be like if we did that for a whole week? What about a whole month? What about a whole year? Can you imagine how transforming and powerful, if we, how Christ-exalting, how God-centered, how joyful, how burden-free of a community, how loving we would be, how, how many of our relationships that, relationships that are fractured would be completely healed and restored? What if, what if every one of us did that this whole week? 
So, so it's hard to make a year commitment, but you could probably make a commitment for seven days. So if you're a Christian here, I encourage you for the next seven days, use the Lord's Prayer as a gift to help you connect deeply with God for his glory and your good and the joy of being with him. Our Heavenly Father has welcomed us rich, intimate conversation with him. Let's take him up on it this week. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Thank you. What a gift. What a gift that we get to pray. And, and Father, I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord, for all the times that I spurn this gift. That I look at prayer as more of a chore, more of a to-do. Forgive me of all the times that I avoid you. And I'm so self-sufficient and proud doing things on my own. Or the times that I just ritualistically go through a quick prayer so that I can get along and do the things I really want to do. Lord, forgive us, Lord. The times were prayerless. And I pray that you would usher in a fresh passion for prayer in our church that would have ripple effects for generations and into eternity. God, stir in us a spirit of prayer. But not just prayer and intercession, but rich communion with you, delighting, being with you. Let us be known by a few things and let one of the things our people are known by, people who love talking with their father, who love communing and sitting in his lap and just receiving from him, hearing from his word and speaking to him. Let us be that kind of people and let the pastors of APC lead that charge. Let us not be hypocrites. The most common attribute of all fallen pastors is somewhere along the lines they lost their prayer life. God, don't let that be the case for our church. And I pray, Lord, that children would grow up in our church seeing their fathers on their knees. That the children would grow up seeing their parents praying more than on their phones. God, Lord, set us apart that the singles would lead the charge at our church to be people who are set apart with the one thing that's necessary. Seeking, not wasting their single years for themselves, but spending on the wisest time, wisest thing, being with you, Lord. Lord, set apart in our church a spirit of prayer. And Lord, if every anything that hinders prayer, any unconfessed sin, any strongholds that we're holding on, whatever it is, Lord, break those tonight, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>